This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and we are here on the Rock Candy Podcast Network. For more shows like this one, go to rockcandyrecordings.com. All right. Well, as always, I have to thank my patrons. My patrons are my personal lords and saviors, and they make this debilitating content creation addiction possible. Keeps me from selling my internal organs on the street to uh, keep this habit going. Also, I have to say, times are rough out there financially right now, and I need you to take care of yourself first and foremost. All content on my Patreon is accessible for $1 a month. If you are able to hand out $1 a month to your favorite podcaster, please do so. It does help this show keep going. This is a job. I do all of the editing, all of the producing, all of the booking, all of the interviewing. Your financial support really does make it possible. But it is also hard out there. So first and foremost, take care of yourself. And there are other ways to support this show. Leave five stars on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify. That really helps. That tells our digital overlords that this show is worth sharing with others. So for this week, I have to thank Michael Samael, Nix Ward, and FV. Thank you so much. And for those of you who want to join their number, go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long for a dollar, three dollars, five dollars a month. You get extra content every single week, including my House of Heretics podcast with the former Salvation Army officer Timothy McPherson turned Christian heretic. And we talk about religion, theology, meditation, politics, whatever is in the news that day. All right. Well, speaking of our digital overlords, I am welcome. <laughs> I am happy to welcome Carl Casarda to the show. Carl, how are you? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you for having me on here. It's uh, it's really great to be on your show. I've been a listener for a long time and appreciate your work. And uh, I've um, been involved in, in those topics of digital overlords and our <laughs> hopefully security as well for a long time, not just not just uh, personally, but also as a actual uh, my career at one point, as well as my personal work now. So kind of crosses all all those boundaries. Amazing. Yeah. So we run in a lot of, you know, we run in similar spaces. Um, you are a longtime member of TST, the Satanic Temple. You're one of the ministers in the Satanic Temple. You also have a YouTube channel called In Range TV. You're a gun guy. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not a gun guy. And, and I, I've actually, you know, for a long time, I've wanted to have you on to talk about guns and to like educate me on guns and, and whatnot. But we I just haven't gotten to it. But now here we are talking about um, digital security. But so tell us some about who you are and what you do. Yeah, sure. I appreciate that. So like, yeah, you know, the gun guy term is an interesting one because that immediately brings up these images of, well, those guys. Right. Um, and those people. And uh, there's a there's a broad spectrum of people that are interested in that topic um, that aren't necessarily that 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 <laughs> image that we always see of that. Right. Obviously, in regards to myself, that, you know, right wing Christian male 
dangerous human being. So that's not me. And there's a lot of people like us that are not that. And so when it comes to my personal work, which was in range, as you mentioned, I like to think of it as a channel that has firearms as its axis, but talks about lots of topics around it as well. Mm. So like, um, it's kind of the nexus of not just firearms as an interest, but mutual aid, personal defense, firearms and its influence over history, culture, uh, conflict. So like there's that, but there's episodes on there about the Underground Railroad or Red Summer of 1919 or things where firearms and civil rights collide, sometimes in good ways and many times in very bad ways. But it's as with any technology, it's a razor blade. It cuts in every direction. So that's kind of what InRange is about. It's kind of like all over the place hmm. in that regard. That's fascinating. Yeah. And I would love to have you on again to talk more about that. We're going to talk about something far more stressful, at least it is for me, which is uh, digital security. So Shalise Blythe and I did a series of conversations in, uh, in response to Roe being overturned. And during that kind of two-part conversation we had, she really recommended you to come on to talk about how people can uh, stay safe online. How how can people protect themselves? A lot of people, I think, are feeling incredibly vulnerable. And a lot of minorities, a lot of trans people, a lot of women, a lot of people with uteruses, a lot of sexual minorities and religious minorities. So I think that it's incredibly helpful to just know how to maintain kind of a, a daily routine level of safety that can just raise people's level of sense of security if, so that they feel less vulnerable. And that can raise kind of a, a general global sense of well-being for them, even if they never find themselves in a situation where it's actually needed. It's still a good idea to know how to feel safe. So talk some about your your experience in digital security and, and then let's go from there. Let's talk about how what are basic things right now that people can do to feel more secure in the world. That is a, it's a very difficult broad question because in many ways when it comes the the horse has been let out of the corral a long time ago. And so it's very hard to bring things back in that have been let out. And in some instances, not possible. So if you want just a brief bit of history, I was like in the hackerspace, DEF CON, landed up in a career of information security architecture, encryption, all sorts of stuff, maybe deeper than we want to talk about now. But that's kind of the background of how I got into that sort of thing. And then as well as with my video content creation project become, well, you become a public figure as you've experienced with probably your work too, and that people know your name and recognize you. And those can be very positive parasocial relationships. They can be neutral or strangely negative, as well as depending on the topics you're dealing with, you are putting yourself out there as a potential target. But you know what? Like just being content creators, as you are described, doesn't necessarily make us different in that regard. Most of the people are probably all the people that are members of our religious movement or other religious movements are targets by the nature of just having a belief system that's different than others. And in this increasingly dangerous world we're living in, especially here in the United States, but worldwide, it's not just here, right? We're seeing kind of a rise of more authoritarian type people who are willing to say pretty scary stuff about anyone else that doesn't fit their idea of what's a positive identity. Maybe that was long-winded. But uh, one of the first things that, of course, we saw people doing within TST were taking Satanims or using some sort of an alias. Um, the challenge with using an alias, and I, I hope, you know, guide this conversation, the challenge with using, using an alias is that 
that if at any time you ever cross the streams, meaning, for example, post a picture with your face on it, with your alias, or like your alias account, and then ever post a picture of yourself with your real name anywhere, the, the level of facial recognition that is now broad spectrum across social media is so broad that the chances of you now connecting those two together is so great that you might as well have not bothered with your alias in the first place if you have a dedicated person pursuing you. Now, it's all about the risk, right? Is it the individual bad actor down the street that happens to be the guy with the Trump flag? Or is it something greater, like at the government level or nation state? These are the spectrum goes across the board. So um, I don't know if I'm going down the path you're wanting to, but like, let me start with the simplest. This thing is this is perfect. This is this is great because, I mean, that is the range of threat that people feel. I mean, there are there are individual members of minority religions and it isn't just satanists i mean it's it's witches it's um f fuck like people from eastern religions sometimes in in various rural places there is this feeling of being very vulnerable not just from maybe your next door neighbor but also from maybe state powers for example in light of the overturning of roe v wade and these absolutely horrific medieval laws in places like Alabama and Mississippi, right? So, yeah, that that range that you're talking about is absolutely appropriate. So, basic things for people to feel some measure of security, to have some measure of security in that situation. Well, the simplest thing you can start to do, and I think we've all been like, it's interesting. There's a phrase that actually Stephen Johnson Label, who I worked with, and maybe some of you heard of him, the artist guy. Um, he did a musical album that was called The Prisons of Dis Prisons of the Disinformation Age. And there's a particular line in one of those songs that says, when the tool becomes the trap. And boy, that hits home. Because so many of these tools we work with now that are incredibly useful to us in many ways can become a trap. And so what you need to think about, and we're going to start from the very basic level here, is what am I putting into the world data-wise that I don't have control over? So... You mentioned Roe versus Wade, a really good seg. That's a real good lead into just one simple thing that probably a number of people have heard about. But maybe I, maybe I can bring some data to the table about why it's so dangerous. Um, menstruation tracking apps mm -hmm. that are on your phone. Uh, you are more than often not that data is not staying on your personal device, the phone in your pocket or on your computer. It is probably some cloud-based app that stores that information under the auspices of a corporation on something like Amazon S3 or Google Storage or something like that. So the problem we run into here where we see this sort of legal issue we're now obviously going to run into is that you have no understanding of the data it controls of your, your intellectual, not just your intellectual property, but your, your privacy in regards to how that corporation will maintain that data should they ever receive from a nation or state actor a request for the information on their servers. So let's say, um, and this is why this is so, this is where we'll get into the better hygiene of this in terms of data hygiene. In Texas, they're doing this regarding reproductive rights. The idea, I mean, we'll just go with this straightforward. Like if you were to have to require, let's say, an abortion service outside of the state of Texas, they are rattling the saber, legally speaking, that if you were to come back to Texas, that they're going to try and prosecute you for a crime that exists that happened outside of their state uh, right. perimeter. California is doing the same thing now about guns. They actually took the Texas law and made it identical, saying that if you do something that would have been illegal with a firearm, as in purchase or acquire or something like that outside of the state of California, they're going to try to do the same thing. I'm not trying to converge the two. It's just interesting to see mm. how rights, whatever you want to think of that, 
are attacked in different ways from different states, regardless of what that is. And I'm not making them on equal level. I'm not saying that this is more important. Obviously, reproductive rights and bodily autonomy transcend California's law about going to buy something in Arizona. I'm just saying it's interesting to see these politicians use similar tactics. So I hope that hmm. no one misunderstands that I'm making these equal footing. Yeah, that but, you aren't making a false equivalence. You're just pointing no, out. No, I'm not. That is, the, the I don't want anyone to hear that. Right, yeah, right, right. I'm just saying it's interesting the tactics are the same. Mm. But here's the thing. So let's say you're using a menstruation tracking app and that app shows that there's a that a, a break in the normal cycle. And then you go to another state to get a service performed and come back. And then the app that you continue to use again shows a return to a normal cycle in a place like Texas or who knows where else in this world. There's a pretty good chance that if they were to come, if they really wanted to take where they say they want to, that they would go to your uh, provider of your application, probably send them a, uh, a a data request, which there's a very good chance that almost any of these corporations will surrender to such a request under the fear of prosecution at a nation state level, and then surrender this data to them and would use that data potentially against you in a criminal case to prove their case that you did something out of state that was illegal in your state. And so what this is, is you're leaking data, metadata that's outside of your control not only on that, but that's a very good app example. Mm. And that sort of stuff can be weaponized against you when you want to talk about at a state level or even nation state level. And that's only one example thereof. And so what that does is it starts to teach us in this one example that if you want to use things that are going to have information in them that you may fear could be used against you, whether or not there's legitimacy in that, just that you think that there's a chance that they could weaponize it, the only way you can use such a thing safely is where you retain control and possession of the data and no one else does. And the answers to that are physical control. For example, the data only stays on the device that you have constant ownership and control over, or the better answer, or maybe both together, is physical control and or encryption control. That means that the persons or people that store your data have no access to your data because you've encrypted it before they got it. Does that make sense? Yes, that makes complete sense. So best ways to to stay safe, A, make sure that you have physical control over, over the device. So like a device that doesn't connect to any network is what I'm hearing you say. Well, I'm not saying that. Or, or even like, or even just in a notebook, a thing that won't connect to, you know, my my notebook is not going to connect to the internet and upload all that data. Is is that what you're saying? That's true. So here's the thing. You're, there's lots of places we can go with this. But so, so many of these apps that we found to be incredibly convenient, especially things that are free, and I put that in air quotes, like Facebook is theoretically free, but mm. we've all heard the phrase, Facebook isn't free, you're the product, right? Right. So... If, if something is provided to you as a free service, especially maybe one of these tracking apps, there's nothing free about that. There's something they're getting out of you that makes it viable for them to provide you that service. It might be that they're advertising in the app. It might be that they're selling your data or using your data in aggregate data analysis to produce some sort of income for the corporation. Very few corporations are going to provide you an app like that out of altruism. So <laughs> when you're providing them that data, you don't know what they're doing with it. And I will tell you that when you look at, for example, terms of service, which are these legalese 75 pages of documents that you're supposed to read before you accept and approve to use an app, they don't even if that app, even if they say they're doing nothing of the sort, do not trust any of these corporations because the law of physics of aggregate data is that it will always be abused. Mm. 
Yeah, it's like ap- absolute power corrupts absolutely. It, it's like the bigger the the bigger the power, the more likely it is to be abused. Um, Let me answer your question there. So I'm not necessarily saying that you shouldn't have something that has internet connectivity or network connectivity, but when you use that's a good lesson there. Is that is this free? And if it is free, why is it free? And right. what does that mean to me and the security of my data? And even if I'm paying for an app, doesn't mean that a corporation won't find itself in a situation where it will probably not decide in your favor. I can tell you from a company I worked at when I was doing information security architecture, there was more than, it was a company that did uh, medical healthcare insurance. And one of the calls I was on, and this is not an exaggeration, there was a, a one of the corporates brought up the, the exact statement of, What's more expensive, actually protecting this data or just dealing with the lawsuits when they come in? Oh, my God. This is is how these things work. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's horrifying. Right. So imagine that you're using one of these tracking apps and the nation state decides or Texas decides, yeah, we're going after these people. And there's a huge repository of data in there. How much do you trust the corporate person somewhere in that organization to not break in their favor versus yours. Right. So you're basically entrusting your life to self-interested corporations. You're basically trusting your data and your legal status as a citizen to gigantic self-interested corporations that do not have your best interest in heart and they will they have no need to defend your interests. Uh, if it if it will uh, suit their purposes, in other words. Yeah, I would say that they're, I mean, some of these corporations are absolutely immoral. We know that. Right. But I say the vast majority are amoral. Mm. They don't really care as long as there's money at the end of the game, and they're not going to get in trouble doing it. Mm. So if there's money in protecting your data, well, that's what they'd be doing. But chances are the money's going to be in just giving it up because it's a much safer route to go. Is it possible also that over time, People have just been leaking data that now might be legal, but might in the future be illegal. And and so, you know, like like conversations on Facebook chat or, you know, what have you, you know, th- stuff like those apps, like those minstrel apps where at the time it's it's perfectly quotidian and safe and normal but there can be a a turn down the road politically where suddenly you have this gigantic digital trail of being a criminal um is is that like how far reaching is that in other i guess is what i'm trying to ask at fear i i don't want to make this sound like a like I understand our conversation here and maybe we'll get more to it at the end about things people can do to help protect themselves, which I think was the question you asked. And I didn't mean to go sure. down the that track, but the reality is, is that, and I, I have a pretty grim view on this to be completely honest with you. Um, we have so long allowed this to happen without even really necessarily realizing what was going on, that it's almost impossible to completely backtrack to the damage we've done to ourselves not just as individuals, but as a societal whole in terms of our privacy and online uh, security. So uh, what you're asking there is can they, will they, or have they, or will they at some point in the future retroactively apply things that maybe happened in 2013 to criminalize you in 2023? I would say we are, there are instances in which there's already indications of that happening. Mm -hmm. And I would say that I, we are probably very close to that being a stark reality. So, um, 
And that's the problem where that's why I said earlier, where the tool becomes a trap. Initially, this was all fun and games using this thing. And hey, look, this is my meal I'm doing. Here's how I'm hanging out or or whatever you posted. I'm sure there are people in the audience that not myself, but maybe it's posted about, wow, those psychedelic mushrooms are great last Wednesday. On <laughs> Seriously. Right. Right. Because, right. Right. But, right it, because it, amongst your friends and all the people you're with that that's not considered a thing federally, that's a crime. Um, will that be used against you someday? Potentially, yes. And uh, so your first step in terms of proactive caution is don't do that stuff anymore. I'm not talking about the mushrooms even. I'm talking about stop publishing the private parts of your life to the internet at all, whether it's Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. Have a conversation, sure. Be there and have friends, maybe. Because remember, guilt by association is an interesting thing too. We can get into that too. But do not be posting anything that you wouldn't necessarily talk to mom about at the local coffee shop amongst listening ears to the internet. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So while we're talking kind of big picture and theoretical, you know, what is the what have we lost in terms of our privacy and why is that a big deal? Because I think there are a lot of people out there for whom the exchange of data for products has just felt like a net positive, right? I think there are a lot of people for whom it's just the new world we live in, and it's fine. So what, in your view, big picture, what has been lost? What Because it, listening to you talk, it really sounds like, in your view, there is something essentially human that is being that is under assault what what is that what is at risk what is being taken from us and why does it matter yeah that's a great question so like you're right so like there's there's a benefit sometimes to some of these targeted advertisements and algorithms that that help us it's this is this is the strange thing about things in this world that are greatly destructive but sometimes bring positive things somehow along like mm. one one example in the real world is gentrification you know maybe it's it's maybe it's nice that when I go outside my front door that the chance of me being shanked is lesser. And I but at the same time, I can also get a pizza delivered. But I've also probably seen a situation in which now the neighborhood I live in is no longer economically feasible to people who could have lived there or afford to even have a home or like the destruction of our cultural identity in certain neighborhoods. So mm. like there's that double edged sword again. And when it comes to this digital environment, it's a similar thing. Sure. Targeted advertisements and being made aware of things that you're interested in is a nice positive reality. But I do feel, and I think to the core of your question, is that there's something basically fundamentally human about being able and, and humanly required to be able to have a safe space that's yours that doesn't feel like someone's watching everything you do. That kind of privacy about whether our lives in general or at least parts of our lives were things that were just the expected norm not that long ago, we're talking a few decades before. I mean, we're only a couple of decades into this level of data collection, and we don't really understand the psychological damage that it's causing to our health and happiness. I think we're starting to understand the psychological damage of some of the data flood of social media that we get. I mean, we have the phrase doom scrolling, right? But the fact that you can't just be you without necessarily an observing eye or the idea that our social constructs are so much online versus offline, and therefore not not playing 
on the online island, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, means that you've been isolated or feel isolated when you decide, I no longer want to give these corporations my data. So in terms of we've lost an element of interhuman personal reaction in the real space, and I know that sounds kind of boomery, but I think there's truth to this from a technical perspective, and replaced it with an online space, which in some ways has been very positive for like, for example, TSD, we get to have friends and, and across the, the world that we would never have had otherwise. But in the process of doing that, we are surrendering unless we're very careful and it's very difficult to be careful uh, without surrendering our privacy in the process. And I think that's a huge, a, a large loss for humanity mm. as being humans. You know, yeah, I completely agree with all of that. And, you know, I try not to sound too much like a boomer when I talk about this shit. A doomer, a doomer and a boomer. I'm very much both a doomer and a boomer when it comes to this stuff. And I I think that the the cultural and psychological and developmental havoc caused by these big digital systems are still very new and we don't know yet what the toll will be. We don't know yet what the rap sheet is going to be. And I want to point everyone to an article that Jonathan Haidt wrote, who's one of my intellectual heroes. Uh, he wrote an article in The Atlantic called Why the Past Ten Years Have Been Uniquely Stupid or something like that. <laughs> and, um, and I'll link it in the show notes. And, you know, I don't agree with everything that he that he states, but basically what he, what he talks about is he he demonstrates the direct line between these big digital systems and the collapse of mental health and social well-being. Um, and and he draw, he's a social psychologist, and he draws this direct line, I think, pretty persuasively from um, things like the, the rise of Instagram to suicide among teen girls and, and you know, epidemic levels of of mental illness among teenagers and, and that kind of stuff. And then just kind of global lack of well-being uh, collectively. And and I, he traces it really closely to that in, in a very persuasive way. Yeah. So I agree with everything that you just said. And, you know, listening to you talk, it it makes me think about how when I am in desperate need of something, it isn't my friends online who come to my aid. It's my kind of normie Christian friend down the street. <laughs> it's those real relationships. It's it's those in-person, meat space, grass-touching relationships where when something goes really wrong in my life, those are the people who are by my side. And, and when we upload all of our relationships to a digital space that is mediated by creepy third-person corporations that do not have our interests in mind, um, that is a profound form of alienation. And the number of people I talk to who tell me that they just don't have in-person friends. And I'm, I, some of my best friends are online. You know, Some of my dearest, closest friends are online over the internet, and I have never met them in person. So I'm not dissing online friendships, right? But but it's also important to have those in-person 
relationships that aren't mediated by big third party creepy industries. <laughs> no, totally. And so like I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't have an online community and friends. That's a very valuable thing and we've seen Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. And that can be a lovely, wonderful, rewarding thing. I do think you need the other you cannot exclude the other as a result of that though. That's mm -hmm. I think what I think we're on the same page in that regard. Definitely. Uh, uh, because there's 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 a humanity there. And so like when we want to talk about having a truly private conversation, it doesn't have to be private because it's illicit. It doesn't have to be private because it's about something that we're worried about even the nation state knowing about or Facebook knowing about per se. Sometimes things should just be private because it's a private conversation between you and some other person you're close to that just is between you two. And doing that on an online network, quite honestly, there's just no getting around this unless you're using an encrypted tool like Signal or others, which we can get to, mm. um, you are giving that data and information to Facebook. And that includes like Facebook Messenger. Let's say you're talking to your partner and you're having a conversation about just your, your relationship or even a loving one or intimacy. Um, you are giving that information to Facebook. You just are. And they're going to use that and build off of it. And they do that in aggregate. So having this is where getting back to that place where you can be in a place where you're just you, without something watching, the best place you can do that is somewhere where there's not a camera or a cell phone sitting in a room that you enjoy with someone that you care about talking. That's privacy right there. And that's about the last place you can find it anymore. Yeah. Even writing in a hand or, or just writing in a handwritten journal, like analog journal, <laughs> that too. That's and, true too. That's and then burn it after you're done. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so let's get into those those practical things that people can do. So let's just start broad and simple. If there were one thing and people did nothing else, if there was one thing that people could do to feel more secure online, to be safer online, what would that one thing do? Like one thing that people could do today, the thing that they could do tonight when they get home from work, what would that thing be? There are, I'm going to, you asked for one, but I'm going to give you two because Perfect. I have to. Perfect. Okay. Uh, the first thing you do is, is look at and investigate using a proper password manager for all of your online account security. Okay. I, this is, I know that that doesn't feel like privacy, but it matters because right now I can't tell you how many people I know that even in there that should be technically savvy are still using three passwords for like 70 things on the internet. <laughs> this is intrinsically dangerous, yeah. very dangerous. And what you want to do is have a situation in which if someone were to threaten you in every possible way to divulge your password to your personal information, if you don't know it, you can't give it. And the way to do that is with a password manager that's proper encryption tools around it. There's a number of them out there. I happen to like LastPass. There's another one called OnePass. You could do it if you want to store your data locally only on your machine. There's a thing called KeyPass or things like that. But what it is, is there's a single passphrase that is, should be very strong. But once you've used that single passphrase to open up your password manager, every password for everything you log into after that should be created by and maintained by that encrypted repository. And you don't even know the password. You don't even know the password yourself. You literally mm -hmm. cut and paste it or use an app to log into things. And if someone demanded your password for Facebook, for example, you can't provide it. You're like, I don't know. I don't even know what it is. That is not privacy per se, mm. but that is a huge jump in security to make sure that someone isn't getting into your data that isn't you. 
Right. So also, what do you mean when you say encryption? So a lot of people are going to be listening to this and be like, I don't know what the fuck he means when he says encryption. What is encryption? Okay, so encryption. So like, what does LastPass do? So, all right. So encryption, and there's bad encryption and good encryption, but to be, to go as technically not too technical as I can get, Hmm. proper encryption is one in which you store what are called keys. So uh, encryption is an algorithm that takes a bunch of data that is clear text, meaning something that you could read just by your normal eye, passes it through an algorithm using either a key or a passphrase, which is what's called a seed, which then generates and then converts that clear text in aggregation, well, in, in, in with your passphrase or key in the algorithm to what's called ciphertext. So imagine clear, like a paragraph, you know, uh, hello, my name is Jason. And then you run it through encryption and it becomes like a string of indecipherable text. Right. That is encryption. And that indecipherable text, if you personally only know the passphrase or only you own the key, it doesn't matter where that indecipherable text goes. No one can read what's in it. You've containerized your private data in a way that even if that data was stored on the public wall of the local bathroom, it doesn't matter. No <laughs> one knows what's in it. And is That's it truly it unbreakable? Is it? Is it truly? Is, is that true security? There's no such thing as unbreakable encryption. What okay. it is is encryption is strong enough that even the best computer in the world trying to brute force it can't get into it in the duration of time that the data matters. Got so it. let me explain. That's called bit strength. And I'm with this gets super technical, right? But the bit strength and the quality of your key or passphrase. So for example, you would not want to encrypt your data with the passphrase dog. That's a bad <laughs> idea. Because a brute force attack would get to dog real fast. And I can explain brute force if you want to get there. But you, you want to use a really good password or key for your encrypted data. But if you're using a proper algorithm and things like LastPass actually do, they use really strong encryption that is designed in a way that they don't have the keys to the data. Your passphrase is the key, and mm-hmm. only your app with the proper passphrase can unlock the data. They can't. LastPass mm-hmm. looks at a block of information. They cannot see what's in it. Now, if someone were to take that data and then try to brute force into it, if they brute force, meaning uh, what they do is run essentially a hard piece of software that just keeps trying to get into it, there's either a vulnerability in the strength of the encryption or your passphrase is too weak, that's the way they would get in. But if you have a good key or a good passphrase and a good algorithm, which LastPass and others use, in the amount of time it's going to take to get into the data, you won't care anymore because you probably won't be around by the time the computers are good enough to break it. (laughs) Got it. So when you say in terms of it's a matter of duration, you don't mean in terms of hours, like they're, they're sitting, the hacker is sitting there gradually figuring it out and you mean you mean in terms of years? Yes, I do. Got so, it. Okay. <laughs> unless, you do something, so unless you do something really silly, right. like use dog as a password, which might actually, you know, someone could breach that quite quickly because there's something that gets really complex, but it's called a rainbow attack. Essentially, when you attack a password with every known word in the known dictionary of every language, hmm. computers could do that very fast. So this is why you see requirements for pass, like passwords to be random and to use characters that are not normal text like use three numbers and you know an extended at like use uh, an exclamation point or an at symbol the reason you're doing that is you're adding what's called entropy and strength to your password which means that it's much harder to brute force it because a standard dictionary attack won't do it Hmm. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm not trying to get too complex. I no, hope no, that makes sense. No, this yeah. May, yeah, no, that makes complete sense. So, so what I mean by that is, so if you have proper password and you get and someone gets a hold of your data and they try to brute force into it, it might take 20 years to get into that, and that's with dedicated big resources. So, will 20 years from now, so the encryption we use now, like decades from now, it is going to be easily crackable, probably. But again, I don't care anymore. Right. That's, that's what. We're, yeah. Right, right, right. That that makes complete sense. And um, okay, so that's oh, thing other, number one. Yes, that was the, the other part of your question, which was about um, the first part was we were going with that. The second part was what's the next thing a person can do in regards to uh, privacy? First of all, the first easy one we already mentioned earlier: don't upload every element of your life all the time. Quite honestly, as much as it's fun and compelling to put up stuff about everything you're doing with every day, my recommendation is don't. As well as another good thing to do is don't do don't upload things full of faces of people you know or don't know, or tag people in photos unless they're willing to be tagged. Those kinds of associations are built, and those are associations that will be used against your privacy. So just don't. But another thing, another thing let's, you can let's, do... Let's pause on that, actually. Yeah. Be, because I... So when you tag someone, you're, you're basically merging your data with that person's, and suddenly there are, there's all kinds of new information that can arise from that. Am I right about that? Absolutely. You're you're essentially combining social networks of one person and the other together immediately in one tiny right. stroke. Right. Yeah. So so this is really also a matter of consent and autonomy. Like don't tag someone if they don't want to be fucking tagged. Um ask their permission first. Uh because it it really is like a matter of bodily autonomy almost you know that that good third tenant stuff you know expanding that to to you know personal autonomy informationally as well absolutely so let me explain that goes two ways right so posting a picture let's say you post a picture of you and a bunch of friends hanging out last night having coffee Mm. and you post that without necessarily knowing that three of those friends would want their photo up even if you don't tag them there's two different things going on one if they have any sort of social media presence ever, the reality is on the back end, the facial recognition stuff happens automatically and you've now given Facebook connections between you and everyone in that photo in one snap of the finger. Mm. The other right. thing is if you tag them, you haven't Facebook can already do it because they're going to use facial recognition to do that. But if you tag them, you've made it possible now for other people who might be the neighbor down the street looking at your profile, now knowing who you're associated with with just a tag. So there's two different levels to this. The facial recognition happens automatically, but that's on the back end. That won't help the weirdo down the street do what he's going to do mm. or they're going to do. But if you tag that person, now the person down the street that's seeing that photo can now know that you're associated with whoever it was you tagged. And that kind of stuff is a leak that happens a lot. And that's a sam- that's an example of where Satanims or aliases break down real fast because it only takes one photo or one tag so to associate your real identity and your pseudonym in one photo, and then it's broken forever. Right. Right, right, right. Okay, so, so far we have two things, which is uh, use a password manager and don't overshare on the internet. And that includes not tagging others. So what's, what's the next thing that people can do? Yep. The other thing I'd like to throw out there, and this one's always contentious among super technical people, but I really recommend this particular tool. It's gaining popularity now. It's, there's others, but the really one I still recommend is called Signal. 
Okay. Signal is an app you can install on an iPhone, on Android, on Windows operating system, on Linux, on Mac OS. And what it is is a properly designed end-to-end encrypted texting replacement tool. So mm. instead of chatting with your friends on Facebook Messenger and giving Facebook all the data that's in those conversations, all of it, it or using iMessage and giving all of the information in your messages to Apple or using something like, or pick another one and giving it to corporation X, Y, or Z, Signal being encrypted end-to-end means that the data is encrypted on your device, it's encrypted in transit, and decrypted on the device you're sending it to, meaning that no one in the middle, no third party, regardless of it's AT&T, Verizon, Cox Cable, or whoever, can see what you're talking about to your friends or party of friends by just simply using Signal as a messenger replacement tool. I'm downloading it right now as we speak. Another thing you can do with Signal is that if you're having particularly spicy conversations with someone, you can set the conversation to have a time to expire on everything you're talking about. This is one of the most valuable parts. Let's say there's something you're talking about that you are a little worried about someday, like maybe, maybe it's about your menstruation cycle is just an example we used earlier. You don't want that data to stay in your chat forever. So what you can do with Signal is say, set my conversations to expire in a week and all of your information and all your chats will just self-delete properly out of that chat conversation. And let's say for some reason, the state of Texas gets a hold of your phone and somehow forces you to unlock it and goes into your Signal chat. Well, that conversation from 1.5 weeks ago isn't there anymore for them to even look at. Right. Amazing. That's data hygiene. Okay, so using a platform like Signal, I just downloaded it. Um, And then what about, while you're talking, you're bringing up chat platforms. What's your take on kind of workspace or gaming chat platforms like Discord or Slack? I assume that those are also intensely insecure. And people just live on on there. Like, I live on there. What's, what's your take on, on apps like that? They're all... Well, each each app has to be d- discussed directly of and of itself. Discord is very insecure as a platform. It has a lot of problems. Problems from authentications perspective, mm. from the, the ability to uh, impersonate other users on the platform while you're there. In fact, I don't know if you've ever seen this in Discord. You can simply go into the the editor mode, and you can actually change text on your screen and take screenshots to make it look like someone said something they didn't. Oh yeah, um, yep. I'm sure you've seen it. Yep. Um, it's happened to me. It happened to others. Discord's very dangerous in that regard. Um, uh, Slack tends to be a little better. Okay, but. Either one of those platforms are things that I think are worth considering from the perspective of I would not discuss anything in Discord or Slack that I wouldn't be concerned about talking about, again, in a coffee shop with someone sitting next by next door listening to it. Okay. Um, so, like, if you're going to have a conversation that you think is of concern, you probably wouldn't sit at a coffee shop. With, let's just, I'm just going to throw this example out there with a cop one table over talking about it with them to listen to. Right. I'm just saying that because that's an authority in the government, right? Sure. So if you're going to have, if that's, if you're like, gee, I wouldn't do that at the coffee shop with that person sitting next to me, you shouldn't do it in Slack or Discord either. But that goes for everything on the internet, unless you really know what you're doing with proper encryption. Signal helps, but mm. that's, you can do better even than that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So 
We have Signal, Don't Overshare, and Use a Password Manager. What about yes. what about a VPN? So are VPNs safe? I got a bit spooked over VPNs because um, the big one, ExpressVPN, was like apparently run by by you know like sketchy criminals or something. Yeah. So here's the thing that's interesting about VPNs: when you tunnel your data through a third party, you're tunneling it through a third party. So that means that you, if you don't trust the company that's providing you the service for that third party data transit, meaning you are anytime you're sending data that you don't personally encrypt and someone else decrypts on the other side, it means that someone in the middle can read it. Okay. So when you're on a VPN provider, unless you believe that VPN provider to be safe, you have to accept the fact that the VPN provider might be looking at the data in transit. So, the other thing I like to think about when it comes to VPN providers is a, or it's data storage in general, especially in the risks that we're seeing in the continental US, is that it's not, not a bad idea to look at entities that are actually outside of the US. Okay. The um, reason for that, and this gets a little bit nation stating, is that <laughs> um, the reality is, is that if the US wanted to get into your data, if your data, your provider was say owned in, if your VPN provider was in say Switzerland, mm. they now have an international issue to deal with in terms of getting into that information. But if they go to a VPN provider that's in say, well, let's just go with Texas since there's such an easy target that's run in Texas, there's a good chance they'll either be like, oh sure, we're totally complicit, here's everything, <laughs> or they'll just fold under any legal threat. But so when it comes to VPNs, if you're going to use a VPN service, and if, we, if people don't know what those are, we can explain why they exist. I tend to recommend Proton VPN, and it's run in Switzerland. And that means okay. your data data logs are not in the U.S. You're going to have to trust someone at some point with your connections and the information that goes across them. I guess it's a question yeah. of of who you are willing, what degree of trust you're willing to give to someone, because it's going to be given, you're going to have to trust someone mm -hmm. for now, good or for ill. Here's, here's where VPNs are interesting. So VPNs are interesting in terms of masking your source network identity. So what I mean by that is, so when you connect to a VPN, you're tunneling your traffic from, let's say you're sitting in in Utah and you connect to the VPN service and you tunnel your traffic through Switzerland to go to a website. The website that you're going to is going to look, going to seem as though you're coming out of Switzerland from a geographic location and identity. However, a VPN does not protect you against your personal privacy about what you're tunneling there with. So let's say you connect to Facebook through a VPN from Switzerland but you're logged into Facebook, it doesn't matter to Facebook that you're coming out of Switzerland. That doesn't protect your privacy to what you're providing them data-wise. All you're doing is masking your network location. Right. So it isn't in any way like a, a complete cure-all. You know, a lot of people talk about VPNs as like this, well, this means that you can get away with anything online. No, <laughs> no not at all. It, it's a very limited kind of security. I like to think of VPNs as being a little more so unless you're getting real deep into this because you can and we can talk about that if you want but VPNs provide provide the ability to do some cool stuff like 
get past Netflix geographic filters if you want to see a show that's no longer put in the US, right? That's that's just a fun, cool thing. Sure. But VPN providing privacy in regards to what we're talking about doesn't do much. Um, the 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 privacy is breached on the platform, not necessarily the network path. Mm-hmm. That makes so, sense. Right. So the network path is interesting. Like if you're in if you're involved in some deep stuff and you want to mask your network location, VPNs done properly can be valuable. But for the kind of privacy worried about, like posting a picture on Facebook that includes five other people's faces on it, a VPN doesn't do anything for you. Or for that matter, if you're using your normal laptop and connecting the VPN to Amazon or Google, there's cookies, there's authentication tokens, there's all this stuff going on in your web browser, for example, that does not get dealt with by VPN. So that entity and those entities you're connecting to, regardless of going through a VPN, still know who you are. Yeah, it's so interesting. It, it's so fascinating. And the way I like to think about all of this is think about your time online as basically like the time you spend driving. You have to, you know, make sure that your car has oil and gas. You have to take it in periodically. You're going to have to spend some time and maybe even some money to make sure you are safe online. It's just part of like basic upkeep. And for I think for too long we've seen the internet as kind of this free-for-all space that doesn't require any responsibility from us in turn, right? It, it's like this this playground where responsibility on our part is just non-existent. And that's just not true. It's it's much more like owning and maintaining a car. And, and so you have a like responsibility to yourself and others to stay safe and to make sure that like you <laughs> your car isn't falling apart on the highway like your tires aren't getting shredded because you haven't changed them or whatever so i i think that that's a really good way to think about this if you're on the internet you're going to have to do basic maintenance to make sure that you are keeping yourself and others safe yeah, no, totally. And it's like the, the, the challenge in these conversations, because they can go on for so long, is that it's all about the level of risk you're willing to accept or the level of threat you think exists, right? So hmm. we spoke earlier about the level of threat about the weird neighbor down the streets that, that hates Satanists. And then we talked about the level of threat of, let's say, a corporation divulging your menstruation data. And then we talked about the level of threat of the large oligarchical corporate entities of like Facebook, Apple, and Google aggregating data in a way that makes an image or understanding of who you are, regardless, regardless of using an alias. Those are all different threats. And the what you have to do is more and more difficult regarding how much you want to minimize each and every one of those individual threats. So as we said earlier, the weird neighbor down the street probably will never figure out your Satanim unless you do something like post facial pictures on both your profiles and then tag something or get tagged once. Mm. That's where that stuff gets leaked. Mm. But if you're worried about, so for example, the next step of the corporation having your information, two answers to that are don't give it to them or make sure that it's encrypted in a way that if they have it, they can't use it. And if you're talking about like being concerned at the corporate slash nation state level, then you got to do a lot. So for example, let's say you never make a mistake between your Satanim and your real username on Facebook. But let's say you use that quick login feature where you pull down the menu and say, okay, right now I'm 
Jeff, but when I pull down the thing, I'm, you know, Bezelbub, they know you're the same person. Facebook does. <laughs> right? right? So right. that's like, so you have to do something different at that point if you want to mask your combined identity to the social network you're associated with. But of course, each and every one of these comes with a higher and higher level of difficulty. Mm. It just occurred to me another thing to ask you about. So there are websites like White Pages where people can literally like Google someone's name and their private information come up. How do you, how is there a way to for for your information to not end up on pages like White Pages? Not really. Um, that that is a that is one of the the horses that got out of the corral a long time ago. And that level of data aggregation is due to the irresponsibility of us as individuals, but more due to the irresponsibility of corporations and our own governments. Let me give you an example of that. Many state governments or even federal level governments stored all sorts of private information about things that they needed to, for example, background checks to do certain kinds of jobs or something. And instead of maintaining the data themselves, they landed up selling that data or storing that data on a third party. And part of the agreement, and this is true, was that it allowed them to have access to the data for marketing information, for example. <laughs> oh, my uh, God. So so the DMV, yeah. so in other words, like voter registration or DMV or what have you, made a deal with corporations to store the data, and part of that deal is that those corporations could use it for their own ends. They haven't all done that, but that is definitely something that has happened and will continue to happen, yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Jesus so, Christ. <laughs> One of the, the weird thing about one of the ways to have less of that data out there is to never publish things with things. So, for example, if you ever put up a website with your real name and your phone number, that's there forever. You're never getting rid of it. But like uh, other silly stuff, that's the truth. And I'm I'm a victim of this, like so many of us are. If you ever buy a home, if you have the ability to buy a home in this economy, but let's say you do, um, that stuff gets registered in public records and that stuff lands up in all sorts of data aggregators. Hmm. And that's where frequently you see that sort of stuff showing up when you do a search for a real name and then suddenly getting address, phone number, all that stuff. All these records are all aggregated. And like I said earlier, the law of data aggregation and law of data physics is that the more data aggregated, the more it'll get breached. It's just how it works. So for example, if you if I were to ever buy a property again, ever someday in my life, I wouldn't buy it under my real name. I'd buy it under a trust. Right. But that's now you got to really pregame to not make a mistake that will burn you later. Right. So some of those sites you can go and requisition or, or request that they remove the data. Historically, most of them don't really care. And getting that stuff gone is damn near impossible. Wow. Yeah. So basically, it all goes back to don't share on the internet. <laughs> Kinda. And yeah, and then there's some and then like you said there's some stuff where it's like the horse is already out of the barn you can't you can't put it back in and yeah cool that's so uh, let me say yeah yeah it's not great is it uh, so <laughs> there's, there's there's it's 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 I so I grew up like I grew up pre-internet and I was in the hacker space and I had this great like I had this huge naive uh like optimism about where this was all going i'm like oh my gosh we're gonna have proper encryption we're gonna have the ability to mock to, to democratize conversations and communications against across across the world and with encryption we're gonna we're gonna blind nation states and corporations well yeah technically that was possible 
The reality is the convenience of websites that were designed by a guy who wanted to get laid in college became the norm. And we essentially, all of us, myself included, fell victim to giving these less than optimal things tons of information. And that's no longer recoverable. All we can do now is give them less moving forward. Now, the the, the positive note, if there is a positive one, and I, gosh, hopefully we'll get there someday, is that a lot of the stuff that's leaking about us as our as us as individuals, whether it's our relationships, our, our gender identity, our sexual preferences, our religious identity, pick one or, or multiple, maybe we'll get to the place someday where the internet has breached privacy so badly that everyone will just accept people for being people. But um, wow, we got a long way to go before we get there. <laughs> It, it it reminds me of uh, Robert A. Heinlein's novel, The Puppet Masters, where it's about like these aliens that these gooey aliens that that are uh, on people's backs and they are brain parasites. And uh, in order to tell who has one of the brain parasites, uh, the government decrees that every person must go around naked and then society just gets used to, you know, like everyone everywhere being naked all the time. So it's, it's almost, well. like, I mean, that's it's kind of, I mean, almost like that future. <laughs> maybe, maybe, I mean, we're not going to get there anytime soon, but if we did, that might be, maybe this really uncomfortable time in terms of what we're experiencing is an evolutionary path towards privacy became becoming less relevant because it doesn't matter anymore, but we're so far away from that reality. Mm. Isn't going to happen anytime soon. Another thing I'm going to throw out there, and I know this sounds kind of conspiratorial, but it's, it's, it's real. If you really want privacy, remember I mentioned sitting in a room with a friend and just having a conversation without cameras. Mm-hmm. It also means not your cell phone. Um, these things are, Depending on what you know, here's a great example. I'm kind of jumping around. You can use uh, Facebook as such a good target. You can use Facebook with the web browser on your cell phone and never install the app. Right. When you install the app, that app does a lot of stuff. <laughs> right. And you've given it access to data on your phone that the web browser would not have necessarily had. And so there's people that are wondering how much these cell phones listen and how much they use it for targeted marketing and such. And there seems to be some creepy data seeming to indicate there's some reality to that. Hmm. But like, I don't know if you've ever noticed this. If you have the Facebook app on your phone and you add someone's phone number that you met just because you met them into your normal phone contacts, you suddenly go into Facebook and it goes, here's a friend recommendation. And it gives you like their entire profile. Yeah, That's because it's digging into your phone's data. So here's another good thing that anyone can do that's privacy conscious. Don't use the apps if you can use the browser instead. Yeah, that's good to know. I mean, I I don't use the apps because I'm a fucking boomer. And so I just do everything in browser (laughs) on my phone. Well, that's a much safer thing to do. The browser tends to have more security measures and what's called sandboxing Hmm. from the rest of your phone's data set. So, but like, so it's like you install the app and they want you to install the app because it makes it a, they intentionally make it even worse of a worse experience to use the browser. The app will probably be cleaner, smoother, and work better. But the reason they do that is because they're trying to get you to use it because they want to harvest data off your phone. And harvesting data off your phone could be GPS coordinates, uh, call records, not necessarily the call itself, but call records, maybe some auditory stuff being caught in the background, other apps you're using, hmm. that stuff. That's These companies are all about aggregating that data. That's how they make their money. So not installing the app will help and if you really want a really private conversation, chuck the phone in somewhere else. 
One thing that I that we might want to touch on real fast, you keep using the word aggregating. I'm not sure a lot of people understand the significance of that word. The way in which a mass amount of data, massive amounts of data, untold amounts of data at population levels how that gives corporations insights into society and into you as an individual. This isn't just about them, you know, knowing where you went to, you know, them knowing where you went to breakfast this morning. You know, it, it, this isn't about that. It, it's about being able to store and analyze oceans of data in a way that they are so that they are able to make predictions about you so and and societally so it's almost like they they have a voodoo doll of you and they know what that voodoo doll is going to do every piece of data because of how that data interacts with all the with the rest of the data and i'm not i'm not a data person i'm this this is my very unsophisticated math brain non-math brain talking about this so correct me if i'm wrong about anything but the term aggregating the the, what that means is like data on a mass scale that is so huge that it allows an extraordinary level of analysis where you're they basically have a model of you these corporations have a have a model of of you and what you're able to do what you're going to do what you like what you don't like right am i right about that 100% that level of accuracy that they're starting to achieve with that level of data aggregation has made it possible in certain instances where they've experimented with shipping products to people before they ordered it (laughs) and and having a pretty low return rate. Wow. So, 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 I mean, we all like to think of ourselves as individuals and of course we are, but in many ways we're not, we all follow patterns. Like, so if you were to aggregate data, so here's an example, you bought a book off Amazon about uh, you bought an Aleister Crowley book on Amazon and then you watched you rented Hail Satan question mark from another place and you drove to the local goth bar and your phone's GPS coordinates show where you're at and then you tagged a few friends on your Facebook while you were there they probably now know that you're if not Satanist you're Satan adjacent and they know some of your friends and they know your local circle that's one example of data aggregation from multiple different sources that will give an image of who you are as a person. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, it, it, I, I think a lot of this isn't very intuitive for people, but data really is that powerful when it's big enough and when there are analytical tools powerful enough to, to kind of siphon through it. It sounds so creepy, but we really do. Like we always, we've always heard the phrase with like 1984 and all that. Like you know, we live in a surveillance state. Yeah. Um, I would say we do live in a surveillance state, but when I say the word state, I don't mean state as in like a government entity. We live in a surveillance state as a state of being. Yeah. This is it's all of that together, and most of it's corporate. Yeah, Most it's, of it's surveillance capitalism. It's survey. It is. It isn't a surveillance state in terms of government. It's as it's surveillance capitalism. Correct. And so we totally, that's how I agree. And so Mm. these companies are making their money. They'll call it, they'll call it targeted marketing, but that targeted marketing is a product of surveillance. Right. 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 And that exists in every way. And so, and these devices that we now are 
very much like uh, dependent upon in our pocket that give us to work and communication and all these apps are a are a surveillance tool and you it'd be hard to not exist in this world anymore without one but you know what you're giving up when you put that in your pocket and walk down the street it is giving it is beaconing a lot of stuff hmm. Um, I know it sounds so I'm not trying to sound super dark, <laughs> but, <laughs> but like, no, no, it's oh, true. It's, yeah. it's true. And it, and it's important that people, you know, that, that we all confront this reality because it's the reality we're living in. It is. And it's like, uh, so this is where that, the, the hacker mindset came from. Some of this sounds like we'll just become, become a person that just, just avoids technology. I'm not going to have these things. I'm not going to do it. First of all, that won't necessarily fix the problem because the people around you are leaking data about you too. <laughs> they just are. Right. Um, the cameras on the street are doing facial recognition. When a cop car drives down the street, the majority of them now, if not all of them, do uh, OCR, optical character recognition of every license plate they drive by. And then it uploads that data to their computer, their laptop sitting next to them. So they know right when they drive by you, if there's something they should be pulling you over for, or maybe they just because they don't like the way you look. But like that's all happening real time on this computer next to them, including maybe your name and other information, like just by driving down the street. So wow. in a world I had that's no gotten idea. to that, yep, that's real. And so in a world where that's the case, we're not we're not turning this back. So the better answer, from a from my opinion, from a hacker perspective, like in that world, is if you don't own the technology, it will own you. So the best thing we can do is become proficient at owning the technology we use to use it to the best of our ability, to our benefit, and to the least of their benefit. Hmm. Is part of that just kind of developing good hygiene on a on on like a societal level? Like, well, if everyone used password, uh, you know, uh, pa- uh, password apps, and if everyone used apps like Signal, is, is part of the issue then just creating a culture of being aware of security? I think so. And the more of us that do this and the more of us like, so like, for example, if, if just think about this, there's um, again, social media, but Facebook is such a great example. If everyone tomorrow stopped to post it, stopped posting personal information to Facebook, what would they do? Right. What could they market anymore? Their income's <laughs> right. gone. Right. They're done. They're, they're like, so, so if we think about it from that perspective, the, the more and more of us that stop providing them this free information, the more and more we're harming their ability to use it against us. Right, right, right. Okay, so so define personal information. So let's say, for example, so last night I posted a, you know, I couldn't sleep. I was up way too late. I was like tossing and turning in bed at 4 a.m. So, you know, like you do, you get up, you, you get up and watch YouTube for a while, which makes it even worse. And so I posted <laughs> to Twitter some music. I was like, can't sleep. Here's some music. And it was some, you know, Italian composer. Would that does that qualify to what do what counts as personal information? Because well, it I seems mean, like everything is personal information. So well, is, is, are is like videos. So so like if I share so if I share like a picture of my new favorite Magic the Gathering Commander deck that I just got or whatever, that's that's still giving information. So so to what degree yeah. are should we share or not share what counts as personal what's that line or is there even a clear line i think it's i think it's up to the individual but it's a very i would think like for example we talked about this earlier would you care about talking about that publicly in a coffee shop with people hearing you you probably wouldn't mind if someone next to you at a table heard about your new magic the gathering deck right 
or that you happen to like this composer or this musical artist, right? Right. And you might even get them lean over and they're like, hey, have you seen this person? That's like, that's targeted advertisement then from the table next door. But it's, again, <laughs> it's, it's like, it doesn't matter because it's not something that matters. Like, Whereas I, I wouldn't want to, you know, be at the coffee shop next to a table full of grannies and talking about how I was in a sex sling being fisted or something. Right. That would probably be a more sensitive conversation that might have a reaction. Right. Yeah. So, right. So exactly. I agree. That's, that's it's up to the, up to the individual. It has to be regarding what they consider they're concerned about, but that's a great example. And that probably wouldn't be something you'd want them to hear next at the table next yeah. to you. So, so like, oh. a, yeah. So sensitive stuff like maybe kink play or, or, or sensitive stuff could be your religious identity, or it could be mm. uh, just your mental health state that day, perhaps. Like, could be. I'm not saying, you guys, like, it's subjective, right? Yeah. But, but, but just got to remember that everything you put on any of these tools is public. Yeah. It's just, it is no different than if you leaned over and said, set it to the table next to you at the coffee shop. Mm. And I think we don't think of it that way because we think, Oh, I've got these 75 friends on my profile and I have my thing set to friends only, which, oh boy, that's another one. How many people just post everything and just have it set to public where you can just <laughs> Google search. But like, that's another thing. If, if you are going to use these social media, try to lock it down to your friend group, hmm. but you have 75 friends and we think, well, I'm posting this only to my friends. You are, but you're also posting it to all of the corporate backends that are listening to everything you just posted. So it is all of your friends Plus the social media oligarchy. Don't plus, forget that they're, they're watching all of it. Yeah, plus the spooky, invisible manipulator behind the scenes. Yep, um, exactly. The giant ear in the sky that never stops listening. Yeah, yeah. For people who want to know more about this, by the way, that particular aspect on social media, I really recommend Jaron Lanier's book, uh, 10, 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now. Um, and he does make... 10 very, very good arguments, but he, he gets into all of these different levels of, you know, like the, the, the cultural alienation, social alienation, the lack of autonomy, just all of it he, he hits on. And he's, you know, a legendary figure in, in technology and data and whatnot. Um, so, yeah, so for me, when I hear that, I hear, I get the point and I, I totally get the logic, but I also, to me, when I hear that, like completely deleting yourself off of the network, Feels a little bit like Ted Kaczynski Unabomber thing where you're out in the woods living the shit. <laughs> I like that comparison, yeah. Because if you want to leave society, you go become that guy, right? Um, that's not healthy either. So I think we have to find the middle ground where use these tools to your benefit and in everything and in every instance in which you post something, think to yourself, is this benefiting me or them? Mm. And if it's benefiting you, then you have to make a you know, risk benefit analysis, if it's worth your while, if that's what you need to do right now, and you realize that what you're giving them, then that's what you need to do right now. But using these tools, realizing that these tools are beneficial, but at the same time, hostile, hmm. is in my opinion, better, because I'd rather own the tech than walk away from it. Because I don't want to live in a shed like Ted Kaczynski. That sounds terrible. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, this is this is the challenge that I have struggled with for as long as I've been a content creator where, and I'm sure you get this too, where I feel like social media is such a double-edged sword 
when it when it comes to content creation it it's like you're one of your greatest tools and your greatest assets and i have been ruthlessly pilloried i it, it's been a source of just such anguish simultaneously and it's like trying to find that balance of how much to share how much not to share how much to care about what people say about me online how much not to care like it's it's such a clusterfuck it i i think we're all like having to to figure that out. But I agree with you that the key is to use the tools and to not let them use you. But that, I don't know, that feels like wrestling a dragon or something. It <laughs> it probably is, but I don't, I think any alternative goes to a worse place. Mm. Like if we just surrender them, like walk away, first of all, we'd have to get everybody to do it. That's part of the problem. This is a, this is an internet. I mean, this is a human problem now, right? It's not a U.S. problem. It's like, yeah, it's like, workers rights isn't just an issue in a mine in utah the minute we do something there it's also an issue for a miner in china these people are being oppressed regardless of what it's an intern it's a human problem hmm. and these, these tools are a human problem so um at, we're not at a point where there's enough of a tipping mass to just walk away and have the majority do that so at the moment walking away really is just becoming this the is just isolation it's becoming isolation Ted, is dangerous Ted in its own right Yes, yeah. it's becoming the the deranged militiamen <laughs> out in the right. ranch. Yeah, <laughs> why not use these things to your advantage, right? Like, so this is a personal fun thing for me. Like, I'll never watch YouTube without proper ad blockers because I don't want to make them a dollar. Eh. So, is that a cool tool with good data on it that sometimes I want to consume? Yes. Do I want to make that corporate oligarchy a dollar while I do it? No, I do not. So I make it. So my personal rule is I won't watch this platform unless I'm making sure I'm not making them any money. So that's using the tool, but not giving them a benefit from it. Awesome. Yeah, I, I really like that approach, a kind of a, a middle ground. And it sounds like a lot of it just has to do with creating a culture of digital hygiene because this isn't going to go away. And the more we are all able to practice kind of those good safety hygiene habits, it's like brushing your teeth every day, <laughs> basic stuff like that, then, then it will make everything better. So to loop back, I think the basic summary we have is use a password manager to protect your information and login so that you don't get hacked. Use a text messaging alternative that's properly encrypted. I recommend Signal. That's where you should create your friend groups and have the conversations that you would want to have that you would have at your personal home. Mm. And then don't post anything to the corporate oligarchy that you wouldn't scream rather loudly at the local coffee shop. <laughs> Doing all of the, I don't violate anyone else's privacy by posting facial pictures or tagging them without their permission. If you do, even those four steps alone could go a long way to making this better. Amazing. And, you know, I also want to end on this note, which is I'm not having this conversation to, to give a sense of doom or, or to say, you know, we're, oh, we're all fucked and everything and is going to be like a Mad Max hellscape or anything like that. No, 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 no. Instead, this, you know, I, I think that the likelihood of, how do I want to say this? It's a matter of preparing for the worst and remaining safe and, and gaining a sense of autonomy and security and protecting yourself in the meantime while the world feels really out of control. That's why I'm having this conversation, not to beam out the message that, Everything is hopeless. I don't believe that at all. Um, 
we still have a lot to fight for and we still have so much to to you know look forward to in this country right and in the world um instead it is to just be honest about the challenges that we're facing currently and to uh not be naive about them and to develop you know just good habits and and good habits and resiliency in the face of them. That's why I'm having this conversation right now. I love that. And I think the other thing we should remember is that we're having this conversation right now because we met through the internet and through other circles that are created partially or mostly because these tools enabled it, right? And so Mm. all of our friend circles and worlds are so much combined in that regard. We used to hear people talk about the internet in real life. Well, those are no longer differentiating. They are one and the same. The internet is omnipresent as is the real space. It's all one and the same. And mm-hmm. so we just need to think about it that way and not think that they are differentiated and leverage these tools to our benefit and less to the benefit of the corporates. And in that regard, they do bring a lot of ma- amazing magical things and the ability to make friends across the world and communicate across the world and provide mutual aid in ways that we never could before. We just have to use them right. Absolutely. Do you have any uh, final thoughts before we wrap up? No, not really. I just don't want anyone to come away from this, like you said, about feeling like doom or that there's no mm-hmm. escape. Um, anything, it's like it's like when they say that whole thing about, you know, if you're a smoker and stop smoking today, the health benefits start three hours later. Exactly. Starting to do some of these things right now, you can never undo the past. Just, that's what it is. But we can, anything you can do now, any one of those steps to move forward today means you're going to have a better, healthier data hygiene tomorrow. So if you start today, you're making an improvement and all of us that do that will make this a better world in the long run. So this isn't doom. It's like, well, okay, we now expect and understand the reality we're facing. What can we do better tomorrow? And that's always all we can do. Beautiful. And uh, for people who want to find some of your content, where can they do that? Well, if they want to watch my personal work, you can find me at inrange.tv. It's just a website, but it'll bring you to all of my decentralized distribution points. If you're interested in, like I said, firearms or civil rights or the convergence thereof, um, that's an, a unique channel in my work personally in that regard. Or you can always get a hold of me at, uh, at TST as well if you're a member there. Beautiful. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. It's been a really fascinating conversation. I hope people appreciate it. Yeah, I'm sure they will. And you're welcome back anytime. This has been great. That'd be awesome. Thanks. Well, that is it for this show. The music is by 117. The theme song is called Wild. You can find it on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long. It is a production of Rock Candy Recordings, and it is supported by my patrons. As always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening. <laughs>